bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Welcome to our April 20th, 2021 edition. We have an exciting podcast for you today, a podcast that we've been preparing for for many months. Or I should probably say members of Congress and their staff have been working for many months to make the subject of this week's Tax Credit Tuesday podcast possible. And what would that be? This week's Tax Credit Tuesday topic will be no surprise to those in the affordable housing community or to those who receive the Novogratic breaking news emails. Today, we're discussing the reintroduction of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. Last Thursday, the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act was introduced in both houses of Congress. We at Novogratik estimate that this bill, if enacted, of course, will lead to the financing of as many as 2 million or more affordable rental homes. Now, this legislation has many provisions, 26 provisions by one count. Now, these provisions, though, fall into three broad categories, production and preservation for one, financial feasibility for another, and rental housing policy. The production and preservation provisions would produce new units, renovate existing rental units, and or serve to preserve already in-service affordable units. Whereas the financial feasibility sets of provisions create or modify Section 42 so that more potential affordable rental developments are financially feasible and can move forward. And then finally, the rental housing policy provisions will better target the loan housing tax credit and productivity bonds to more effectively serve families and communities in need of affordable rental housing. And we're very fortunate today to have Novogratz's own Peter Lawrence and Karen Dusterell joining us to discuss the bill's provisions. Peter Lawrence is Novogratz's Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. No one is more plugged into affordable housing policy in Washington, D.C. than Peter. If you've attended our conferences or even listened to this podcast for very long, you've seen or heard Peter share his expertise. Karen Desterall is a tax policy research associate in Novogratz's Washington, D.C. office and has been very involved in researching and drafting Novogratz's explanations and summaries of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. You may also know Karen as she oversees our various working groups, including our low-income housing tax credit working group, Opportunity Zones working group, and New Marcus tax credit working group. I do encourage you to reach out to Karen to become a member of one or more of these groups. Now, the purpose of today's podcast is to discuss the specifics of the bill, to discuss what is in this legislation. Unfortunately, we do not have the time today to discuss how the bill, or at least parts of the bill, can become law. But don't worry. We know that getting at least parts of this bill enacted is of paramount importance to us, to the country, and to you. To that end, we will discuss the means to getting the bill to the president's desk at the Novogratz Affordable Housing Tax Credit Virtual Conference that's being held next week. That's next Thursday and Friday, April 29th and 30th. More particularly on Thursday morning, I'm going to be hosting a Washington Wire session that's going to discuss how this bill, or at least parts of it, may be enacted. During that session, we're going to look at such things as budget reconciliation and how budget reconciliation can be limited by the bird rule and what a bird bath is. We'll discuss President Biden's infrastructure bill or perhaps infrastructure bills or other means to and vehicles, potential vehicles to enact the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. We'll also discuss how you, our listeners, can help move the bill forward. But that's all for next week, April 29th and 30th. For now, we want to focus on what the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act would do if enacted. And to that end, as I mentioned, Peter and Karen are here to share a lot with all of us. So if you're ready, let's get started. Peter and Karen, thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you so much, Mike. Greatly appreciate being able to be invited on the podcast again. Yes, thanks, Mike. And I'm happy to be here uh, with you and Peter today. Right. Thank you uh, again. Now, Karen, maybe you can get us started. And before we jump into all the specifics of the bill, which is the purpose of the podcast, maybe you could give a brief background and legislative history on the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. Sure. As Mike mentioned, the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act was reintroduced last on um, April 15th in what is now the 117th session of Congress. So this is the fourth consecutive session that we've seen a version of this bill. The legislation was first introduced in the Senate in 2016 during the 114th Congress. And in the congressional sessions that followed, bills were introduced in both the Senate and the House. So since 2016, there have been you know, many adjustments to the various provisions, and we're going to talk about the specific changes between 2019 and 2021 uh, later on in this podcast. But you know, looking specifically at 2021, the bill was introduced in the Senate by Senators Maria Cantwell, Todd Young, Rod Wyden, and Rob, Ron Wyden, sorry, and Rob Portman, um, all of whom were original or co-sponsors of the 2019 Senate bill. Now, Senators Cantwell and Wyden have been supporters from the beginning, and they were original sponsors of the 2016 Senate bill. So in the House, the bill was introduced by Representatives Susan Delbeni, Jackie Walorski, Don Baer, and Brad Wenstrup. And all four were sponsors of the 2019 bill as well, with Wenstrup. He's the only one who wasn't an original sponsor. So, you know, that kind of lays out, you know, who introduced the 2021 bill. So kind of looking back at 2019 and what we might see uh, for our new legislation going forward, you know, there was a great deal of support for the AHCIA in past years. Uh, in the last Congress, there were 274 members who co-sponsored the 2019 legislation, 41 senators and 233 uh, representatives in the House. So, you know, we're hoping that we'll see the same amount of uh, support or even more. And this is up from, you know, the original uh, 11 co-sponsors that we had in 2016. So there's been a great deal of growth in uh, support for the various housing provisions. And with COVID-19, it just stresses uh, the need to really address the ongoing housing, affordable housing uh, crisis. So unfortunately, you know, we haven't seen the bills advance out of their various chambers. But, you know, that doesn't mean advocates haven't been, you know, really working to get different provisions uh, attached to, to other legislation. So most notably, the 2019 age CIA, uh, various provisions were included in um, last year's Moving Forward Act or H.R. 2, which was the House Infrastructure Bill, which passed in the House uh, last year, July 2020. Uh, and so, you know, we started to see the connection being made between housing, community development and infrastructure. And we're seeing that this is still kind of going on with the introduction of uh, President Biden's recent blueprint for infrastructure, which is the American Jobs Plan. And so we're going to be discussing kind of all of that, the infrastructure bills, the housing provisions contained within at uh, the conference next week that Mike had mentioned. So with that, I'm going to open it up, see if, if Mike or Peter want to add any Anything else to kind of the background uh, section here? I mean, I would just note that, you know, since you did mention the conference next week and you did mention the various Senate and House sponsors that we do have uh, Senator Todd Young providing a keynote address uh, at our affordable housing conference next week. And we do also have uh, Ron Wyden, who's the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, providing a keynote address at our upcoming Renewable Energy Tax Credit Conference. So we're uh, pleased that both of them joining us at future events. And that's all that I had to add to add at this point. I don't know, Peter, if you want to share anything else before I 
start to jump into some of the details of the bill? Just two quick things. And one is that uh, we're really glad to see that Senator Rob Portman has joined as one of the original four lead sponsors of uh, the Senate bill. Uh, He, in essence, is taking the place of Senator Isaacson, who supported, uh, was one of the original co-sponsors of the 2019 bill. And then similarly, Representative Brad Wenstrup from Ohio has joined as one of the original four in the House, replacing uh, Kenny Marchant from Texas, who is one of the original four in the in the uh, 2019 bill. So just wanted to add that piece. Great. Thank you for uh, noting that, Peter. That's uh, obviously very important. Now, before we talk about what's in the bill, I can't help, Karen, but uh, ask you about what wasn't included in this bill. There, there are two provisions that were in the Forecasting Credit Improvement Act in the past that are not included in this bill. And if you want to share with our listeners what those two provisions are. Sure. And there's a bit of good news here. The first provision that was in the 2019 bill that has not been included or reintroduced in the uh, 2021 bill is the provision to set a minimum 4% tax credit rate for acquisition and bond finance development. And it's not included here because it was actually enacted as part of the fiscal year 2021 omnibus spending bill that was signed uh, in late December 2020. So we have a number of blog posts kind of dealing the importance of setting a 4% floor. So I won't spend you know too much time on that. But you know I do want to say that the 30% present value tax credit as the 4% credit is officially known, they refer to it as a 4% credit, but for a very long time, the percentage use has been much lower. So in December 2020, the rate was 3.09% and it fluctuates each month. So needless to say, advocates have fought for a really long time to enact the 4% floor. And so this goes back to what I said earlier about about, you know, various provisions of the AHCIA being included in other pieces of legislation. And, you know, we'll talk more about vehicles and, and, and such when we touch on this next week at the conference. So the other item that was not included in the 2021 bill is the right of first refusal provision. So Section 42 allows nonprofit general partners the right of first refusal. So they can, they're allowed to purchase a tax credit property that they manage for a price equivalent to the outstanding debt plus exit taxes when their investors exit. And this is intended to preserve the property's affordability. So the 2019 AHCIA included a provision that would have replaced the right of first refusal with a purchase option for newly financed properties. And during the you know drafting process for the most recent iteration of the bill, you know that provision uh, was removed from the final bill text. Now, just because it's not been included in the AHCIA legislation doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be pursued separately uh, in the future. So those are the two provisions that have been uh, removed from the most recent legislation. Right. Thank you for that, Karen. I would note that with respect to the 4% floor, which we are obviously all excited to see enacted, mm-hmm. there have been a lot of questions about the implementation of the 4% floor and which types of developments are eligible for it and which aren't. Uh, we know certain developments aren't. We know some developments are and some are in a gray area. And we're going to discuss that in more detail at the conference next week as well. On the rider first refusal, I'd also just note that under the rider first refusal, under Section 42, owners can give a nonprofit a rider first refusal on the terms that you mentioned, but not necessarily all nonprofits have it. It's just a question as to whether or not when they originally enter into it, they give a rider first refusal. And there's been a lot of discussion in conflict uh, around rights of first refusal, which is well beyond the subject matter of this podcast today. Uh, but now let's jump into the specifics of the bill. That's why you're listening to the podcast today is to understand the specifics 
of what's in the bill. And as I noted earlier, there's a reduction and preservation aspect. Uh, you know, how many units can you finance with some of these changes? And then there's also a financial feasibility uh, and rental housing policy parts. But I wanted to start with the production and preservation and have Peter uh, Lawrence, Peter, if you could share with us uh, those provisions. Uh, I myself, in looking at the bill, I sort of think of maybe four broad categories of production uh, provisions. Uh, one is lowering the 50% test. And I'll ask you to explain that a bit, but to allow for more productivity bond finance projects to work. A second one is increasing 9% allocations. The third one being bond recycling. Uh, and fourth, there are really five of these types of provisions, but my fourth category would be the 30% basis boost provisions and expanding it. And there's five ways in which the bill would expand the basis boost provisions. So with that as a background, maybe Peter, you could start with the 50% finance buy test and how what it'd be lowered to and why this is important. Sure. So, you know, as uh, many podcast listeners well known, you know, the there are two types of housing credits, you know, a one that is allocated to the states on a per capita basis. And then there are a separate uh, pool of authority that's triggered uh, with the allocation of productivity bonds for rental housing. And as long as a uh, developer has at least 50% of the financing of a productivity bond, tax exempt bond uh, financed property, they're eligible to receive the full amount of 4% credit equity that the, the property is eligible for. And this threshold is an arbitrary threshold that Congress set. It actually lowered it, uh, the, the threshold in 1990 from 70% uh, to 50%. Is, as Karen mentioned, the official name of the uh, 4% credit is the 30% present value. So it, back when the uh, credit was created in, uh, in tax reform in 1986, it, it sort of the remaining 70% was intended to be covered by uh, productivity bonds. But we soon learned that that threshold was impractical and uh, was didn't work for financial feasibility. And so we are now at a point where the there's an increasing recognition that the 50% test is outdated as well. And to a large extent, many developers may re- request the f- uh, amount necessary to meet the 50% test, but on a permanent basis, uh, when the property is placed in service and the property is refinanced, those bonds are, are paid back either entirely or partially, and a much smaller permanent debt load is needed. Uh, and because of that, makes, I think, a more efficient use of resources to lower the threshold to 25%. And uh, the National Council of State Housing Agencies, NCSHA, did engage Novogratic to analyze uh, what this uh, proposal would mean. Uh, and we first issued a report last year uh, prior to the enactment of the 4% for, and with the 4% for uh, enactment, NCCJ engaged us again this year to evaluate what it would mean if the uh, uh, threshold were, were to be reduced from 50% uh, to 25%. And our analysis, we can you can see it online uh, if you want to read the whole thing, and we'll talk about it at our uh, conference next week. But the bottom line is, 
if you did reduce that threshold, you would free $93 billion in bond cap. And if all that were to be used for rental housing, and there was sufficient uh, gap financing availability to maximize unit production and preservation, we estimate that nearly 1.5 million affordable rental homes could be financed, perhaps even more. And uh, that uh, it makes it a tremendously powerful provision in the new uh, 2021 Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. We're very excited about this and the potential of this. Uh, thank you very much for that, Peter. So on the production and preservation side, I mentioned lowering the 50% test, which is a new provision, as you just noted, and the significance of it from a production and preservation standpoint. I also mentioned increasing 9% allocations, 30% basis boost provisions of bond recycling. I was wondering, Karen, if you could discuss the provision to increase the 9% allocations. The bill provides you know, a 50% increase over two years, which sounds pretty simple. Is there anything else that listeners should know about that provision to increase 9% allocations? Sure. Um, there are actually a number of, of things um, I'd like to point out. So the 2021 bill, as, as you mentioned, proposes to incre- increase the 9% LIHTC allocation authority by 25% in 2021 and in 2022, plus, plus an inflation adjustment. Now, this year's provision differs from the 2019 version in that the allocation increase would occur over two years, uh, as opposed to the five years that was proposed in the 2019 bill. And so, and this change from five years to two years was actually first introduced in HR2, which I mentioned earlier, which was the House's infrastructure uh, legislation legislation from last year. So this means that nine, annual 9% allocation would increase from $2.81 per capita with an approximately $3.2 million small state minimum under current law to $3.52 per capita with a $4.1 million small state minimum in 2021. And then would increase again to $4.47 per capita with a $5.2 million small state minimum in 2022. And then you have the inflation adjustments thereafter. Well, you have the new baseline, the new higher baseline to which you know future calculations would be would be applied to. So knowing all of this, the big question is, you know, what does this mean in terms of aiding in the you know production of additional affordable rental units? So increasing the nine percent allocation annually by twenty five percent plus inflation could finance up to two hundred and ninety nine thousand additional affordable rental homes over ten years, according to our analysis. And so we have a blog post that you know details the analysis and and the methodology. So I'm not going to go into all of that right now, but you know I do want to mention that when conducting the analysis, you know, we set a baseline that included the temporary 12.5% increase in tax credit authority that had been enacted as part of the fiscal year 2018 omnibus spending bill would be made permanent. And so we, you know, started with that assumption and then uh, went about determining, you know, how many additional units could be financed. Right now, that additional 12.5% increase is set to expire at the end of 2021. And so this change in, in, in the phase and period, so from going from five years to two years, you know, it's really important because it helps to address, you know, the pre-existing affordable housing crisis, which I mentioned earlier, you know, which has made, been made worse by uh, COVID-19. So, and, and there are a number of other changes and the blog post actually, in addition to providing, you know, methodology details, also kind of looks at state level analysis. So, you know, it'll tell you which states would expect to see uh, the allocation authorities, various states would expect to see and other benefits of increased uh, allocation. So I think I will stop there and see if, if there's anything else you know you or Peter would like to add. I think that's a, a good set summary. 
I mean, uh, one of the critical points which you mentioned is that in addition to the 25% increase every year for two years for 50% plus, you also incorporate into the baseline or the bill incorporates into the baseline that 12.5% that was enacted a few years ago. It's set to expire at the end of this year. Well, let's move on to the next production piece, and that's the basis boosts. So Peter, if you wanted to share uh, with the audience, there are five in total. And they all overlap in some way or another, but let's ignore all of that. If you want to just discuss each of the basis boosts, and then if anyone who's listening has more specific detailed questions, they should reach out to a Novograd professional uh, to discuss how they interact with each other. But if you want to take it away, Peter. Sure. And I'll start uh, for, with three of those five that uh, we uh, specifically focused on in our analysis in the blog post Karen mentioned. And those three are extending ability of states uh, to provide a discretionary uh, basis boost uh, with 9% properties to uh, private activity bond finance properties as well. And that would be able to cover any bond finance property that a state chooses uh, to provide a, a basis boost as long as it's needed for financial feasibility. The second of the three I want to focus on is extending geographic areas to capture uh, in, as a uh, difficult development area definition, rural areas. And rural areas are defined by you know non-metro counties as well as areas that qualify as rural for purposes of uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's rural development programs. And they are essentially, you know, rural areas of metro counties. And uh, again, uh, we, we could uh, please look at the uh, blog post for further details on that point. And lastly, of the three, I want to note uh, that uh, it would also classify Native American uh, tribal areas as difficult development areas. And, and I think it's worthy to note that both in rural areas and in Native American areas, given how low incomes are in those areas, it's often very difficult to be able to support high amounts of debt and to the extent that you have a basis boost that debt can be replaced with housing credit equity. And so when you combine all three of these 30% basis boost provisions, Novogratic estimates that those provisions total could finance 222000 over 10 years or potentially more, depending on more bond finance developments happen than is currently projected. But those are also really important to helping financial feasibility and provide you know more resources on the bond side of the program. Great. Thank you, Peter, for those three. Karen, did you want to jump in with the other two? Sure. Um, so the other two basis boost provisions would be increasing, or other two related provisions would be increasing the population cap on difficult development areas or DDAs and repealing the qualified census tract population cap. So currently, properties are eligible for up to 30% basis boost if basis boosts if they're located in either a DDA or a QCT. Uh, and the 2021 legislation includes two separate provisions that would that proposes changes that would uh, enable more properties to automatically receive 30% basis boost, th- thus improving the financial feasibility of these uh, properties. And so, with the DDAs, it would increase the population cap from 20% uh, of the nation's population to 30%. And you know, we could go down a whole uh, rabbit hole, kind of explaining all of this. And so, I would again direct listeners to our, you know, our blog post on the topic. But I do want to note that here, um, unlike the um, 
previous production uh, provisions we've discussed, you know, we didn't do a separate uh, unit estimate for these two provisions, as there is really a great deal of overlap with the um, analyses that, that Peter had mentioned. But it is worth noting that production and that these two pr- production and preservation provisions, if enacted, would help to increase uh, the production of uh, affordable uh, rental housing units. Right. Thank you for that, Karen. I like to think of it as uh, these two changes, which simply increase the number of DDAs there are and increase the number of qualified census tracts there are. And if you're located in a DDA or a qualified census tract, then you're automatically eligible for the 30% boost. And as you note, we're not going to go into all the technical uh, provisions that allow for those uh, increases. So the fourth area of production, Peter, that we talked about, or at least I talked about at the beginning, uh, was bond recycling. Maybe you could share... Uh, with our listeners, what we mean when we talk about bond recycling and to what degree bond recycling is allowed under the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act as introduced. Right. So under current law, that you are able to uh, recycle multifamily bond proceeds. There's a limited provision in the code that allows this. Uh, it's not very easy to use, but you know, states that have a very robust multifamily tax exempt bond programs uh, do use it. But the recycled proceeds uh, do not generate uh, more four percent credits, and so there's sort of limited leverage, I suppose, a way to think about it through the use of that. And what uh, the uh, provision in the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act would do would be to to broaden the eligibility of, of recycling of proceeds to single family as well as multifamily. And so what that would mean is that uh, it's possible that a state could choose to fund its uh, single family uh, mortgage revenue bond program entirely with recycled proceeds from their multifamily program and therefore reserve as much new uh, private activity uh, bond volume cap for multifamily housing, which generates 4% credits. Uh, And so this is a I think something that would be very helpful and given the the ever increasing amount of states that are bond cap constrained, uh, certainly the lowering the 50% test, 25% test would be helpful, but this would add uh, some more flexibility for states so that uh, they can maximize the use of their limited uh, bond cap for uh, rental housing. So thank you for that, Peter. And for to give a little more detail to some of our listeners, when we talk about bond recycling, and we're basically saying that the bonds themselves are used, say, for residential rental housing, and then those bonds could be used for residential rental housing and with them bring along the rights to the 4% tax credit. And then to the extent that those bonds are then paid off after, say, a year or two years, those paid off bonds could then be used for a single family home. Right now, under current law, you can pay off those bonds and use them for other residential rental housing. Can't get more tax credits, but you can use it for residential rental housing. This would expand that use to single family as well, which would then allow you know many state agencies to use their bond volume authority first for residential rental housing, bring along 4% credits, and then after a year or two, refinance those bonds and use them for single family. So those bonds could basically serve dual purposes. There are other efforts within Congress to expand bond recycling, if you will, even beyond that, so that bonds could be used for residential rental housing, say, first and bring along 4% credits and then be refinanced out to be used for non-housing purposes that are otherwise allowable under the private activity bond rules. But that's not in this bill. And it's in uh, 
uh, other bills or to be introduced in other bills. So there's a, a good effort to try to expand that as well, to, to further expand bond recycling through other bills. Uh, I w- I'm going to skip past uh, Karen and Peter, our more detailed production analysis. Please go to our uh, blog post to get detail on what we think the policy credit improvement act, or at least some of the key provisions would do with respect to financing additional units. I want to move on. We have two other categories, financial feasibility and rental housing policy. And we have a lot more to cover. We're well into the podcast already. So I appreciate our listeners staying with us. But in terms of financial feasibility, there are, there are several provisions that are in the Affordable Credit Improvement Act designed to make more existing projects that aren't quite financially feasible, they don't balance out yet, to help close that gap. And Peter, if you could share with the listeners what those provisions are, knowing that they can get the details from the blog post, but if you want to just run through the highlights of the provisions that are in there, and maybe there's one or two that you think are particularly worth emphasizing. Yes, indeed. Uh, and there are uh, six that we put in this category. And I'll start with the first one, which has gotten some profile among uh, affordable housing advocates. And that is the 50% basis boost for apartments that target extremely low income uh, renters. And that's extremely low income means uh, households earning at or below 30% of the area mean income or the federal poverty line, whichever is greater. And so uh, that really, that provision is designed to try to ensure that those uh, units targeting the lowest income populations don't carry hard debt or at least limit it as much as possible because it is uh, something that uh, it's very hard to finance those type units. And to the extent that you can get rid of hard debt uh, makes it much easier to meet the, and make those type uh, units um, financially feasible. Uh, there's a provision that helps address existing uh, tenant income eligibility. To This is particularly helpful in uh, facilitating preservation of uh, existing HUD and USDA-assisted uh, housing. There is a provision to simplify the 10-year rule on, on acquisitions and the related party rule. Uh, this, again, would help preservation. Uh, there's a, uh, a provision to standardize the income rule uh, rural income limits to extend the policy on the 9% uh, side to that of the bond finance side of the program. There is a provision to include uh, relocation expenses and eligible basis. This, again, really helps with preservation as sometimes you need to relocate tenants to do the preservation and re- rehabilitation safely. Uh, and those costs that would enable those costs to be included in eligible basis. And then last, and I think this is key, given uh, Biden administration's focus on climate change and green energy, this would eliminate the basis reduction uh, for energy efficiency tax incentives and the renewable energy investment tax credit, you know, primarily used for solar panels, uh, so that you know developers who wanted to meet those energy efficiency goals in their properties can do so without uh, losing housing credit subsidy. And that we see that as a key focus for the, the, the Biden administration, and therefore this provision would be really helpful to make sure that housing credit properties could uh, um, access those benefits. Great. Thank you for that, Peter. I don't know, Karen, if there are any of those that you think are particularly important or what the impact of some of these in the aggregate might be. I mean, I think the most important thing to kind of keep in mind about these provisions is that overall, 
they'll make it easier to reach uh, hard to serve households like extremely low income renters. Uh, and, and it'll be easier to to finance and develop uh, affordable housing in hard to serve communities like rural areas. So I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway from this discussion. Right. Thank you for that, Karen. So then the next area, the third area, we the third bucket, if you will, the, the, from my perspective, we put these various provisions into is the rental housing policy or housing policy bucket, if you will. And Peter, if I could get you to describe uh, these provisions, once again, I need always need buckets. So here I need sub buckets <laughs> and I have a sub bucket of qualified allocation plans. Some provisions affect states and their designing of qualified allocation plans for allocating tax credits. Uh, a second one deals with tenant populations and easing certain targeted tenant populations easier, make it easier to serve them or clarify how you can serve them. And then the third relates more to the operations of low-income tax credit properties and private equity bond properties and clarifying some of those rules. So within those three buckets of qualified allocation plan provisions, tenant population provisions, operations, if you could share with our listeners what makes up and what provisions are within each of those. Sure thing, Mike. And I, I want to again emphasize, encourage folks to look at the blog post. We're not going to be nearly be able to do justice to all of these uh, uh, provisions, but I just do, do want to quickly run them down. Uh, and in that first QAP sub bucket, so to speak, uh, there is a provision to create a selection criterion uh, for housing in Native American uh, areas. This is similar to the existing selection criteria under uh, Section 42, the Housing Credit Statute. It does not require uh, the housing to be placed there, but just merely uh, directs states to consider uh, the population. And so that would be one. Uh, another would be there's a provision to have a selection criteria on costs, uh, development costs to con- consider. You know, states already have often a consideration of this. Try- they're trying to balance the need to, to serve a wide variety of populations, uh, but at the same time, not uh, have uh, too much being allocated to any one project that is necessary for financial feasibility. So this that would be added uh, uh, another selection criterion. Uh, there was a provision to clarify the community revitalization plan component. Uh, you know, states are allowed to prioritize uh, projects in areas uh, need of concert community concerted community revitalization, and this provision would clarify what goes into those plans. Uh, and then, lastly, it directs treasuries to re- issue regulations to prohibit uh, local approval or contribution requirements. And this is largely designed as an anti-NIMBY provision, uh, so that if a local uh, jurisdiction were to d- uh, deny. Uh, approval uh, or uh, a financial contribution that could not uh, prevent uh, affordable housing from uh, being developed in their uh, jurisdiction. Uh, so that's the first sub-bucket. The second one on tenant populations, the provision would um, better combine uh, the housing credit and conform uh, the housing credit to the Violence Against uh, Women Act uh, to make sure that uh, there are protections for victims of uh, domestic violence are reflected in housing credit properties. It would clarify the, the general public use rule so that uh, properties are uh, that they're targeting veterans on either the 9% or the 4% side of the program are able to continue to to target such populations. And then uh, the student rule, it sort of brings the uh, housing credits student rule more in line with the, the HUD uh, student rule, such that uh, if you have uh, resources 
using both sources that uh, it's much easier for uh, for compliance on that. Uh, so last bucket is sort of a, a focusing on the operations of housing credit properties. Uh, there's a provision to set uh, in housing credit properties using the average income test or the extremely low income basis boost to the housing credit rent as opposed to the voucher uh, rent for uh, tenant-based uh, voucher holders. There's a uh, provision to ensure that uh, affordability use restrictions uh, endure illegitimate foreclosures by giving the authority to determine what a foreclosure is to the state agencies. Uh, it would extend the average income set-aside option uh, to uh, bond property, finance properties, as well as the 9% properties. And, and you know, we will, again, I encourage you to talk to your Novogratic uh, professional on this point. Under current law, you still theoretically can do that, but this would facilitate, this provision would facilitate that. Uh, and then uh, there is a provision to extend the same policy IRS has given to uh, properties that uh, experience a casualty loss and federally declared disasters to ones that all casualty losses. And then for those that have uh, a, a particularly large federally declared or state declared disaster, I would provide the states with the ability to provide an additional 12 months, so beyond their first 25 for a total of uh, 37 months. But in that case, if that extension is granted, uh, that that uh, additional up to 12 months would be added to the compliance period. And then the last and perhaps, I guess, and some uh, folks feel is important for anti-NIMBYism reasons is the changing of the name from the low-income housing tax credit to the affordable housing tax credit. Great. Thank you for uh, all of that, Peter. And many of these uh, housing policy-related provisions, as well as potentially some of the financial feasibility-related provisions, uh, may not be able to survive depending upon how or what vehicle this legislation uh, or we attempt to attach this legislation to. We're going to talk about that more in the Washington uh, Wire uh, at their affordable housing conference a week from this Thursday. So stay tuned for more of that. Uh, but these are all critical provisions that we would love to see uh, enacted. So we've covered a lot of ground about what's included in the legislation. And as I was just noting, we're going to discuss these provisions at the Novogratic 2021 Affordable Housing Virtual Conference next week and spend a lot of time on how we go about getting these provisions, or at least some of these provisions, enacted into law. But before we wrap up, uh, Peter and Karen, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you want to make sure to share with our listeners. Um, Mike, I think the only thing I'd want to uh, mention is that, you know, we've talked about, uh, we've referred to the blog post a lot. Um, and so, you know, there will be a link to that post in the show notes. And it's uh, the notes from Novogratic post that was placed online on April 15th, same day as the introduction of the AHCIA. So I would definitely direct listeners to that. Um, and as you mentioned, we're going to cover a lot of this in more detail during next week's conference. Great. Thank you. And I also encourage our listeners, if you just Google Novogratic blog post, you'll get there, but we'll also include the link as uh, Karen noted. Uh, but actually, before we uh, close, uh, Peter, if you could share your email address for our listeners, they can reach out to you with any questions they might have. Absolutely. It's uh, peter.lawrence at nc-llp.com. Let me spell it again. P-E-T-E-R dot L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E 
at nc-llp.com. Great. Thank you, Peter. And Karen, you don't get away that easy. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like you to share your email address as well. Sure. Um, So that's uh, karen.desterel at nc-llp.com. So K-A-R-E-N dot D-E-S-T-O-R-E-L at nc-llp.com. And if anybody has, you know, any questions and if you're uh, especially interested in our uh, low-income housing tax credit working group, I'd be happy to hear from you and to uh, provide more information. And I'll also include their email addresses in today's show notes. Uh, And as I noted, I'll also include a link to the LHCC working group, a link to the blog, as Peter and Karen have mentioned many times. uh, And that blog does give a good in-depth look at the bill. Uh, And then I'm also going to share in the show notes the link to register for our housing conference that we've been mentioning. That'll uh, begin next uh, Thursday. We do have some sessions in advance some breakout type sessions, but the full conference starts uh, a week from this Thursday. You could also simply Google Novogratic Low Income Housing Cash Credit Conference, and that'll take you there as well. So thank you again, Peter and Karen, and thank you to our listeners. I do want to encourage you to tune into next week's episode as well. It's actually the episode that was originally scheduled for this week, but got postponed because of the timeliness of the introduction of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Bill. We wanted to cover that as quickly as we could, so we postponed. My partner, Tom Bowman uh, and Risa Kareem, uh, they're going to be with us to discuss, this is next week, they're going to discuss how state and local taxes and tax incentives interact with renewable energy properties. Tom and Ressa will share steps that you can take ahead of time to maximize the tax credit equity along with lowering development and operating costs associated with state and local taxes for renewable energy projects. And as I always say every week, you can make sure that you're notified as soon as an episode of Tax Credit Tuesday is available by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Simply go to www.novoco.com slash podcast to subscribe, as well as to stream the show directly from our website. You can also subscribe to Task Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.